you got a Bible this morning, Revelation chapter 1 is where we're going to be. We started a series on Revelation six weeks ago. Today's the seventh uh, message in this series. We're still not out of chapter 1 yet because we're trying to lay the groundwork for the book of Revelation, a book that for both saved and lost has a certain stigma attached to it. Uh, A lot of people uh, are fearful of the book of Revelation. Some people would go as far as to say it's apocalyptic, you can't understand it. Um, there's, some people would say it's full of symbolism. I would actually uh, contend with that statement. I don't think it's full of symbolism at all. Uh, I actually think it's very literal. Uh, the things that God writes in this book are very, very literal. Uh, and, so, and so we wanted to take the, the next probably year and a half, honestly, uh, to spend in this book uh, geared to the end times, so that we can understand what God has uh, for us to understand. Uh, This book has a tremendous blessing associated with it. If you go to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 3, it says, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And I just want you to understand that this book, like no other book in the Bible, has this tremendous blessing associated with it. Blessed are you if you read the book of Revelation. Blessed are you... If you hear the words of this prophecy, and blessed are you if you keep the things that are written therein. I don't know about you, but I'm interested in God's blessing in my life. And so it starts with with reading this this book, and then it it, it continues with hearing this book. And then thirdly, we need to we need to keep what we learn out of this book. God says we'll be blessed. And so uh, and so there's a, a tremendous motivation for us to study this book together as a church family. And so we've been working through verses 9 through, through 11 the last few weeks, and, and we're seeing that John had a relationship with these seven churches that he's writing to. He calls himself their brother and companion in tribulation, and, and John was a pretty unique disciple of Jesus. Uh, he was the beloved disciple. He was, he was the guy, the only disciple at the cross when every other disciple of Jesus fled at his most weak and vulnerable moment, John was there. And, and John had a conversation with the Lord, and the Lord had a conversation with him about taking care of his mother at the cross. And so uh, just a tremendous disciple. And, and we learned a couple of weeks ago that when John is receiving this revelation, that he's at a very specific place. Verse 10 tells us that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I don't want to take all the time to, to rehash that material, but, but understand that John was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He, he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos physically, but spiritually, when he's receiving this revelation, God transported or translated him forward 2,000 years so that he's literally seeing everything that he's seeing from a very unique vantage point, a very unique perspective. It's, it's the Lord's day and the Lord's Day is not Saturday the Sabbath or Sunday when we come to church. It's, it's, it's the day of the Lord. It, it's synonymous with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And, I, and again, just if you walked in this morning, you're like, man, what is all this? Okay, well, we just need to set the, the per- perspective of where John is writing the book of Revelation from. If we don't understand his perspective, we won't make right application from the book. And, and so he is literally... Trans, translated forward in time 2,000 years and is literally seeing all the events leading up to and including the second coming of Christ. And then, and then Jesus gives John some instruction. He hears a great voice 
and he understands that he needs to, to see some things, and the things that he sees, he needs to write in a book and send it to seven churches. And so, and so we talked about last week how God's words are written for our benefit. God writes his words down. We don't have to have a, an experience with God now where we're driving down the road waiting to see a vision or hear a voice from heaven. God's written his word down, and it's for us, the church. It's for the saved body of Christ. And I'm thankful for that because that means I don't have to base my relationship with Christ on my experiences, on waiting for some supernatural event to happen. God's written down his words for me. I can understand God through the written word of God. And I'm thankful that he, he chose to reveal himself that way. And so this morning, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And so let me pray as, as we begin. And, and you have a lot of blanks today. If you want to take notes, take notes. If you don't want to take notes, no problem. Uh, but there's some resources available in your seat to follow along today. So let's pray, and then we'll get in the Word of God. Father, we love you. Thank you for the morning. And again, we, we want to just reiterate that, that you're so good. Uh, we, we are thankful for what we sing about you uh, because it's truth, because it reveals your character and nature. God, we're thankful that we can come to your word today. You have something for us, the church. You have something for us to, to grow from and to learn about. God, you also want anyone in the room that may not have a relationship with you, God, you want to strengthen a relationship with all people. And so, Lord, I pray that you bless us, help us to, to learn as we study, and we'll give you the glory. And we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And, and if you're taking notes this morning, we're going to continue with this thing of, of John and his relationship with Christ concerning the revelation. And your first blank is this. We're going to see John's interaction with the revelation. And really what we're going to see is John's interaction with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because Christ is the one that's revealing this revelation to John. And I want you to look at verse 12. The Bible says, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. This is John writing. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one likened to the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire. And his feet were likened to fine brass, and they burned in a furnace, and his voice is the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, for I am the first and the last. And the verse goes on. So it's interesting that, that John is turning to see this voice that's speaking to him. And when he turns, he begins to describe what he sees and who he sees. And listen, who he's describing is the Lord Jesus Christ. But you've got to understand that John knew who Christ was. John walked with Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. John was one of the 12 disciples. He, he saw Christ during his earthly ministry. John even saw Christ glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration. You guys remember that? When, when Peter, James, and John went up to the mountain and Christ revealed his glory? Listen, John was there. He saw him. John saw Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. John saw Christ resurrected after his death burial. He saw him resurrected. He saw him for 40 days as he taught about the kingdom of God in Acts chapter 1. And then he saw Christ ascend in a cloud, according to Acts chapter 1. And for the next 60 years, 
John did not see Christ. Do you, do you understand? This is a guy that knew Christ, that walked with Christ, that heard his voice, that, that ministered with him, that prayed with him, that, that saw the miracles, that participated in the ministry. And listen, now John is an old man, an older man. Let me say it that way so it's not offensive. And, and John is a prisoner on the Isle of Patmos, and John sees Christ again. But this time he sees him like he's never seen him before because he sees him in all of his glory. And so this morning, you know, the message is seeing the glorified Christ because we need to see Christ the way John saw Christ because this is how he is. And a lot of times in our mind, when we think about Jesus, we, we go to different points in history. Maybe the birth, right? The virgin birth. And, and man, this innocent babe that was born of a virgin. And we're comfortable with that view of Christ because he's weak. <laughs> I mean, babies are harmless, you know? And, and maybe that's what we associate Christ being like. And that's fine. That was true for a point in time. And maybe we'd like to go back during his earthly ministry where, where, where he... You know, he had compassion on people, and he certainly has compassion on people, and he, and he healed people, and he did miracles, and he fed the hungry, and he, he, he spoke the word of God to people. And listen, that's all true. He did all of those things. But sometimes that's the Christ that we're really comfortable with, right? Or, or maybe it's the Christ on the cross of Calvary, because ultimately he, he paid the price for our sin, right? And, and as he's, he's suffering and as he's dying for our sin, that's the the Jesus that we're comfortable with because that gives us ultimately what our, our salvation is. It, it's through his shed blood. He died for our sin, for my sin, for your sin. But listen, when John sees him in Revelation chapter 1, he sees him like he's never seen him before. He saw him as he is. And, and, I, and I would dare say that when you and I see him, we're going to see him the way John saw him in Revelation chapter 1. So let's talk about this for just a second. Number one in your notes, the Christ location. Where did John see Christ? Well, John saw Christ in the midst of the golden, excuse me, of the seven candlesticks. It says in verse 12, being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man. And, and if you skip down just a little bit further in Revelation chapter 1 verse 20, God tells you what those seven candlesticks are. And again, I don't want to belabor this point, but a lot of people say, well, Revelation is just so full of symbolism and typology, you can't really understand it. Okay, well, let's just look at Revelation 1 and verse 20. It says, The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, listen, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Those seven candlesticks are the seven churches. So there's no symbolism. There's no, there's no typology. As John is positioned on the Lord's day, seeing Christ, he sees Christ in the midst of seven candlesticks. And those seven candlesticks are seven churches. And I don't care how you slice it. They don't represent anything else. They are seven churches. And what we need to learn from that is that Christ is in the midst of his churches. Christ, Christ is in the midst of his church. That's where John heard the voice that spoke to him come from. 
Christ is in the midst of those seven churches. And, and here's the key in your notes. This signifies Christ's guaranteed presence in your life and in mine. Because the church is just a body, it's a, it's a body of believers that assemble together. But when we assemble together, we are the body of Christ. And can I just tell you, when we assemble, it, it's literally the physical manifestation of Christ on this earth. In other words, Christ is in the midst of his body, of his church. When we assemble, well, the Lord's here. And, and, and there is no, again, I'm not saying that you can't get saved outside of church. Listen, you can receive the gospel anywhere at any time. You don't have to be in a church building. I didn't get saved in church. As a matter of fact, I'm thankful, no offense, don't take this the wrong way. I'm thankful I didn't. And the reason why is because there was a Christian that was serious about the gospel and he shared the, the love of Christ with me personally outside of four walls on a Sunday morning. And, and he helped me understand that I was a sinner, but, but God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for my sin. And through his shed blood, I could be forgiven. And listen, when I heard that message at the age of 21, I wasn't going to church. I wasn't sitting in a pew. I wasn't sitting in a nice, comfortable chair, eating, eating a donut, drinking coffee. and enjoy Listen, I wasn't doing any of that. But God got a hold of my heart and made me realize I need to be saved because I'm a sinner and I can't, I can't save myself. And I'm guilty before God. The point is, you can get saved outside of church. But once you get saved, God's in the midst of his church. In other words, this is the place where we meet with God. This is the place where we hear God's word. And again, listen, you can read the Bible outside of church, and you should. But when we corporately gather together, this is where God meets with us. You can listen to sermons and podcasts outside of church, but there's something special and biblical, and there's something unique about God's presence in the midst of his church. There's something unique and special and biblical about it. And this is where John hears the voice. He hears the voice of Jesus Christ in the midst of his churches. That ought to make us desire to be here together so that we can hear God's voice corporately and together. Number two, we see Christ's title. He says when he sees Christ in the midst of these seven churches, he says, I see one like unto the Son of Man. And again, that phrase is a very unique phrase in the Bible. Now, a lot of times when we talk about Christ, we think that, and, and we're right when we say this, he is the Son of God, right? The Bible talks about Christ being the Son of God. He is, he is God in the flesh. He is fully God and fully man. But when we come across a term like this, we say, well, Son of Man, that must mean less important or less God than Son of God. Son, son of God sounds way more spiritual than Son of Man, right? Well, again, if we, if we go back to the Bible, I mean, and in other words, you could, you could, some people would say, well, if Jesus is just the Son of Man, then he's just a man, and that's no big deal. But, but the phrase, Son of Man, literally equates Christ as the Messianic God. It's the Messianic title of Jesus Christ. And, and if you would go back to Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a prophecy about the, the coming Messiah for the nation of Israel. Uh, and he says in Daniel 7 and verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him. And, and Daniel's vision is of Christ. And he, 
he sees Christ coming with the clouds, and he calls him the Son of Man. And so that title, Son of Man, is the messianic title of Jesus Christ. And so as John is looking in the midst of those seven churches, he says, man, who I saw was one like the Son of Man in the midst of those seven churches. You can study the book of Ezekiel, and in 93 verses in the book of Ezekiel, that phrase, Son of Man, is used. As a matter of fact, Ezekiel is called the Son of Man, majority of those times in the book of Ezekiel, making Ezekiel a type or a picture of Jesus Christ. That same phrase, Son of Man, is found 30 times in the book of Matthew, and we know that Matthew, the book of Matthew, reveals Christ as the King of the Jews. What's interesting is that phrase, Son of Man, is not found a single time in the Pauline epistles. But Son of God is, right? And that's very interesting to me. And so, and so what John is seeing is the Son of Man, and it signifies Christ's deity. Who he is seeing is the Messiah. He's seeing the God-man, the man, Jesus Christ. And then John gives us insight into Christ's garment, and again, can you just imagine John seeing Christ? He hadn't seen him in 60 years. And now he's seeing him for the first time. And listen, what he sees is blowing him away. He sees Christ's garment. And he says he's clothed with a garment down to the foot. And he's girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And if you were to take the time to go back to Exodus chapter 28, literally what he sees Christ's garment looking like is the Old Testament priest's robe. If you were to go back to Ezekiel, or excuse me, Exodus chapter 28, and you read about the high priest Aaron, he had a very unique garment, and that garment covered him as he fulfilled and ministered in the priest's office, and he had a, a breastplate and an ephod and a robe and, and a garment and a miter and a girdle, and Aaron was to go and make intercession for the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel would bring sacrifices to God. And Aaron and his sons would offer those sacrifices to intercede between sinful man and a holy God. That's how it worked in the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way now. You can't offer a, a bull or a, a lamb or a sheep to atone for your sin. It, it's, it's through Christ now. And, and what John is seeing is the present ministry of Jesus Christ as a priest because that's what he is for us now. He has an unchangeable priesthood according to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 23 to 27. He, he, he ever liveth to make intercession for us. Do you realize right now that the mediator between you and God is Jesus Christ? So it's not a priest, it's not the Pope, it's not a pastor, it's not any religious person, it's not the Old Testament high priest Aaron. Do you realize right now the only mediator between you and God is the man Christ Jesus? He, he, he fulfills the role presently as our great high priest. And when John sees him, he sees him with that garment. He's, he's clothed down to the foot. He's girt about the paps with a golden girdle. And listen, Christ is, is making intercession for us. And there's no more sacrifice for sin because Christ gave his life for our sin. So it's interesting because he is the offering and he's the priest who offered the offering. That's powerful, man. That's powerful. Christ is a better priest. He liveth to make intercession for us. And I'm thankful for that. His priesthood will never end. 
You know, in the Old Testament, when Aaron and his sons had the, the priesthood, you had to be born into it. But listen, the priesthood, when you died, the priesthood kind of died with you until the next son came, the, the next person that was part of the lineage of Aaron. But can I just assure you that Christ is never going to die? He's never going to die again. We have an eternal priesthood in Jesus Christ. And that's what John sees. And then he starts looking at his body. And man, these next few characteristics are powerful. John looks and he sees Christ's head and his hairs. And they look a little different than what he saw before. He says they were white like wool. They were white like wool. In other words, you know, he, he has kind of gray hair, white hair. And many times we associate that with, with old age, right? Or older age. Uh, you're blessed, by the way, if you have hair that grays. I can't keep mine, so I don't think it's ever going to get, you know, I got, I got like tips of gray, but I don't think I'll ever be gray-headed. I'll just be bald-headed very, very soon. Uh, but, you know, Christ had hairs and, and his head were white like wool. And, and as, as you study that in the Bible, listen, that's something, it, it's a position of elder, elder uh, respect and honor because we're, we're to honor and respect the old men, right, in our, in our, in our communities, in our church. Leviticus 19, verse 32 says, thou shalt rise up before the hoary head. In other words, you, you show respect. Somebody older walks in the room, man, you stand up and you show respect. And the honor of the face of the old man, fear thy God, I am the Lord. And so God says we are to respect our elders, and that's a good spot for an amen for all you young people, that's okay. You are to rise up before the hoary head. And listen, if you got hoary hair and somebody stands up when you walk in the room, view that as respect. Proverbs 16, verse 31, the hoary head is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. So old age doesn't necessarily equate to spirituality, but it should. But it should. Uh, old age with unrighteousness is not a crown of glory, but old age with righteousness is a crown of glory. And, and, and so here's the point. When John sees Christ, he sees his head and his hairs, and they look different. It's kind of like, man, you've aged a bit. Well, you've got to understand that Christ is eternal. And, and that's what it shows us. The, the, these white hairs and this white head show Christ's eternality. I mean, listen, he's the beginning and the end. He's eternal. He's from everlasting to everlasting. There's no beginning in Christ. There's no ending in Christ. He is eternal. And when John sees him, he doesn't see him wrapped in flesh like he saw during his earthly ministry. He doesn't see a man 33 and a half years old that was crucified. He sees the eternal God. That's who he sees. And he says in the next part of that verse that his eyes were as a flame of fire. And, and, and what, what John notices next is his eyes, not just his head and his hairs, but now he's moving down and he sees his eyes and his eyes are as a flame of fire. And, and listen, John would have been no stranger to Jesus's eyes. I mean, listen, those are the eyes that looked upon John when Christ was hanging on the cross. They saw John, and John saw him. It, it was those eyes of the Lord that in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20, that Christ lifted up his eyes as he sat on the Mount of Olives, and he taught his disciples. John would have seen his eyes. It was those eyes that were lifted up in John chapter 6 and verse 5 that saw the multitudes, and he turns to his disciples and says, hey, 
Let's get bread to feed these people. John would have seen those eyes. It was, it was in John 17 and verse 1 where Jesus lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed what truly is the Lord's prayer over his disciples. But man, when he saw his eyes this time, they looked a little different. You see, there, there's an old reference back in the book of Song of Solomon that talks about Christ's eyes. And in, in Song of Solomon chapter 5 and verse 12, and I believe this is the first coming of Christ, the Bible says that his eyes are as the eyes of doves by the rivers of water, washed with milk and fitly set. And, and listen, during Christ, by the way, Song of Solomon is a book about a Jewish king, King Solomon, the son of David, and his love for a Gentile bride. Now that ought to, that ought to tell you the context of Song of Solomon. And in the Song of Solomon, God gives us instruction about Solomon's eyes, which is a picture of Christ's eyes. They are the eyes of doves. But man, listen, when John sees his eyes in Revelation chapter 1, he doesn't see the eyes of doves. What he sees are eyes as a flame of fire. Eyes as a flame of fire. Daniel saw a similar image in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6. The Bible says in Daniel 10 and verse 6 that his body was like the barrel and his face as the appearance of lightning and his eyes as lamps of fire. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18 says that this son of God has eyes like unto a flame of fire. Revelation 19 and verse 12 says his eyes were as a flame of fire. And can you just, can you just understand that, listen, God had eyes like a dove, man, full of grace and, and, and willingness for sinners to repent. He was full of grace and full of mercy at his first, first coming. But when, when John sees him now, man, he sees eyes full of fire, full of judgment. The Bible tells us in, in Proverbs 15 and verse 3 that the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. In other words, those eyes of fire are already looking right now. Which is very interesting to me because they're eyes of fire. And, and, it, and if you're a Christian and you, you've kind of spent some time in the Bible, you know that as a believer in Christ, our sin is dealt with on the cross of Calvary. But from the moment we get saved forward, God will, will ask for stewardship of our life. In other words, what did we do with this Christian life that God gave us? And we commonly call that the judgment seat of Christ, right? That, that's the place where we give an account back to the Lord. It is interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 13, when you read about the judgment seat of Christ, that God says, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by what? By fire. And the fire should try every man's work of what sort it is. And I'm not trying to be weird this morning, but I'm just saying, man, when we stand before the Lord and give an account as a child of God, of the stewardship of what God's given us to be responsible with, the gospel, the ministry, the word of God, the spiritual gifts that he's given us, I think God is just going to look and examine us with his eyes. Because those eyes can behold both good and evil. And man, those eyes represent Christ's justice. They, they represent Christ's 
justice. In other words, man, he, those eyes are as a flame of fire. And man, they're able to discern both good and evil. John's looking at a set of eyes that he'd never seen before. He's looking at Christ that he's never seen before. And then, and then John continues looking down his body and he sees his feet. And his feet, he says, are likened to fine brass. And that's very interesting. Again, in Daniel chapter 10 and verse 6, Daniel, when he sees the Lord, he sees not only eyes like fire, but he sees feet in color like polished brass. It, it's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 18. And, and so there's something unique about Christ's feet. They're like fine brass, Revelation 2 and verse 18. And, and when you study brass in the Bible, you go all the way back to the book of Exodus and as you study brass through the book of Exodus, you see that there's an altar that was made. And that altar was covered in brass, Exodus 27, verses 1 to 6. And every instrument that the high priest would have used to offer a sacrifice and an offering on the altar well, was made out of brass. And, and, and listen, those feet represent for us Christ's judgment. And the reason it represents Christ's judgment is because on an altar in the Old Testament, that's how one was made right with God. You had to bring an, an animal to be sacrificed, innocent blood to be sacrificed for your sin, and it was offered on an altar of brass. And listen, all of that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ because he put himself on an altar but it wasn't an altar of brass on this earth. It was, it was the cross. And, and listen, he paid the price for our sin. And it's a picture of judgment over sin. And listen, there's something unique about those feet of fine brass because they show us God's judgment for sin. It's those same feet that are going to split the Mount of Olives in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 4. When Christ comes again, the Bible says that his feet are going to stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof. In other words, that mountain's going to split right in half. And the reason it's going to split right in half is because those feet of brass are going to stand upon it. Those feet of judgment. It's those same feet that are going to crush Satan's head at his return. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 tells us that it was prophesied in the very beginning God said, I'm going to put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. Talking about the serpent's seed or the devil's seed. It shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. And can I just tell you, at the second coming of Christ, those brass feet are going to bring judgment upon this earth and judgment upon our adversary, the devil. It's going to crush his head. I think the last time John saw his feet, they were pierced on a cross. And now he sees his feet and he's like, man, that looks a little different. That looks a little different than what I saw last time. He has feet of, of brass. And then the Bible says that it has, John mentioned something about his voice and he says that Christ's voice is as the sound of many waters. And, and again, I, you know, this is a, an interesting statement. Uh, anybody ever been to Niagara Falls? I've never been to Niagara Falls. Did anybody take the boat down and do the whole thing? Was it kind of powerful, overwhelming? Did you get wet? <laughs> you get wet in the boat, right? 
man, listen, I, I can't even imagine some, you know, something like a natural resource, Niagara Falls, a great waterfall, just the roaring of water. I love going to the beach with my family. I love just sitting on the beach and hearing the sound of the ocean. And, and God's voice is so much greater. It's the sound of many waters. Psalm 29 and verse 3 says, the voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The glory of God thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. And, and again, I can't understand it or explain it, but I do believe it because the Bible says so. God's voice is more powerful than any sound we've ever heard before. It's the sound of these mighty many waters. Jeremiah 10 and verse 13, when he uttereth his voice, There is a multitude of waters in the heavens. Ezekiel 43 says his voice was like a noise of many waters. And and what that tells me is, and I'll give you the blank and I'll tell you what it means to me, it signifies the presence of Christ's words in my life. There's times in the Bible where where God uses a still small voice, like like it's small, you know, it's a whisper, so to speak. But then there's times where, man, God's word is just so loud. And it's not based on the volume of the preacher or the volume of the teacher. It's just, it's undeniable that that's God's word. Does that make sense? Are you, you kind of feeling that? I'm thankful that his voice is as the sound of many waters. And as powerful as the ocean is, and as powerful as something like Niagara Falls is, and as powerful as something like Victoria Falls is, listen, God's word has a sound that's greater than that. And when you hear it, you know, you know it's God's word. You know it's God's word. It's not just religious noise. It's his voice. It's the presence of his word in our life. And, and then we look at Christ's hand, and the Bible says in his right hand he had seven stars. And again, you, oh, what does those stars mean? I mean, what is all that? Uh, and if we were to go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 20, again, there's no really room for interpretation here. He tells us that those seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand uh, are the angels of the seven churches. And so Christ is in the midst of those seven churches, and in his right hand he has seven stars. Now the common interpretation of this is that those angels are the pastors of those seven churches. That's the common interpretation of that. Uh, it, 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 it's commonly said that an angel is a messenger, And so because of that, uh, the angel is just the pastor of that church. Uh, The truth is that there's no cross-reference to make that conclusion. In other words, you can't prove that in the Bible by comparing Scripture with Scripture. Uh, Secondly, I would ask, have you ever met a pastor? He probably ain't no angel. No amens. I'm listening. Listen, I mean, if you've met yours, you know he ain't no angel, right? That's some really bad English, but... These angels are not the pastors of these churches. And again, you can't, you can't get there biblically. The biblical interpretation is that angel certainly can be messenger, but more importantly, angel is always associated with an appearance. In other words, the angel of God is an appearance of God in the Bible. The angel of light, when he shows up, gives the appearance of light. The angel of the Lord is an appearance of the Lord. And so we need to understand that everything on this earth has an appearance in heaven. Everything on earth has an appearance in heaven. You have an earthly representation 
but a heavenly representation. Let me give you an example. You are here at 7905 Logan Drive this morning, but you are also, according to the book of Ephesians, seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have a representation in heaven. Uh, we know from, from the Old Testament there was an earthly tabernacle, but we also know from the New Testament it was patterned after the heavenly tabernacle. There's an earthly representation. There's a heavenly representation. And these angels are in Christ's right hand. You say, what does that mean? I really don't know what it means. All I know is that in, right, in Christ's hand, whatever's in his hand is secure. That's what I know. John chapter 10, verses 27 to 28, Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. You see, in the hand of Christ is a place of assurance. It's a place of security. It's a place of comfort. And so, and so when John sees Christ's right hand and he sees these seven angels in his hand, these seven stars, it, re it represents and signifies for us Christ's assurance. Because listen, if they're in his right hand, they're never going to get plucked out. And neither will you. Neither will you. And, and you need to rejoice in the power of Christ's hand. Man, listen, I don't know about you. I've made some mistakes since I've been saved. How about you? And listen, if God were keeping score, uh, well, and, and if I were able, I would probably have knocked myself somehow, some way out of Christ's hand. My sin would have, would have undone what God has done. Does that make sense? And if I didn't do it on my own, some other man or the devil or a demon could possibly try to do it. But in Christ's hand is security. And that ought to give us assurance and comfort and peace that he's never going to lose us. He's never going to let us go. He's never going to forsake us. Then John goes on and he sees Christ's mouth and he noticed something unique about his mouth. He says, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And that seems kind of crazy. You know, I mean, we just passed Halloween. This would be a, a pretty graphic image that, that out of Christ's mouth is coming this sharp two-edged sword. Many of you know what this points to and represents. It's, it's mentioned again in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12. It says, these things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. And that sharp sword is, a wor is the word of God. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 tells us that the word of God is quick. It's powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Do you know that the word of God can read your thoughts? It can. It, it can read your emotions. It can read your intentions. You know, I shared that testimony last week when I, when I got saved and I started going to church, man. I thought like the pastor was stalking me all week long. And I'm a brand new Christian and he doesn't know me from Adam. But every Sunday I go to church and it's like, you know, there's seven, eight hundred, nine hundred people in church, but I feel like he's talking right to me. I'm like, how did you, how did you get this information, man? Like, how? How do you know what's happening in my life, what I'm thinking, what I'm doing, what I'm struggling with? How do you know that? Well, he didn't know that, but that book knew it. The Word of God knew it, and it was piercing me. It was cutting me like a skilled surgical instrument, cutting the things out of my heart and life that needed to be dealt with. So listen, that two-edged sword is powerful because, number one, it can act as a skilled surgical instrument. It can bring you to the point of salvation. 
It can cut you away from your sinful flesh spiritually. It, it, it creates a spiritual surgery in your life that the Bible calls, oddly enough, a circumcision where you're cut away from your sinful flesh by the Word of God and the Spirit of God. And listen, that's all profitable. Those are all positive things. Surgery is to accomplish good. But I'm, I'm going to tell you the other side of that two-edged sword is judgment. The same, the same sword that can cut and bring about healing and restoration and recovery, that same, can also, that same sword can also smite and smite to the point of judgment and death. And so if you look at Revelation 19 and verse 15, the Bible says, and again, this is the, the actual second coming of Christ when Christ returns to this earth. It, it says, out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should heal the nations. Is that what, is that what it says? It doesn't say heal the nations. At this point, that sharp sword is going to smite the nations. In other words, it's going to deliver the death blow of judgment over sin. And, and that's the twofold purpose of God's word. And listen, can I just encourage you today? I don't know where you are, but can I encourage you? Let the word of God perform surgical, spiritual surgery on you. Don't let the word of God perform judgment on you. Does that make sense? Can, can you be on the receiving end of God's grace and God's skillful hand to deliver you from your sin and even as a saved person deliver you from the things that, that, are, that are limiting your relationship with God? Can you be on the receiving end of that instead of God smiting with the same sword? It signifies for us the power of Christ's word because that word is powerful and it's powerful. And I know you've got to get to lunch, so let's finish up. And John sees Christ's countenance. And he sees him and he says, when I saw him, I saw him as the sun that shineth in his strength. And, and the word countenance in the Bible just means face. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 6, you can kind of prove that. He talked about people of sad countenance that had disfigured faces. Okay, And so countenance just means face. And when John sees Jesus' face... Man, he sees it as the sun that shines in its strength. Can you remember the last time John saw his face? I mean, listen, leading up to the cross, do you, do you remember what happened to Christ and specifically what happened to his face? I mean, listen, listen, when John saw him walking the road to Calvary, one of the last times he saw him, listen, Christ's face was beaten and smitten and spit upon by both the Jews and the Romans. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 26, verse 67, it says, they did spit in his face and they buffeted him and others smote him with the palm of their hand. In Matthew 27, in verse 28 to 30, it says, they spit upon him and they took the reed and they smote him on the head. They beat him to a pulp. That was prophesied in Isaiah chapter 15, verse 6. The prophet writes and he says, I gave my back to the smiters, my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. So when John sees Christ's face on the way, on the way to the cross, man, it's a bloody mess. It's unrecognizable. 
no offense, whoever paints the modern portraits of Jesus, you know, that looks like halfway European with gentle, nice skin, with no scars, no bruises, no scratches, no nothing, they just hadn't read the Bible. His face didn't look like that. And John saw it, man. John saw him beaten to a pulp, mocked, smitten, spit upon. But listen, when John sees his face this time, in Revelation chapter 1, John is staring straight into what appears to be the sun in all of his strength, which is very interesting. It doesn't say the sun in its strength. It says the sun in his strength. In other words, it's the brightest object that John has ever seen. It's like a nuclear bomb going off in his face because the sun... Well, the sun just isn't an object in, in our space. The sun is a person. I'm not saying that the, the sun is a person in the sense of what we see, but the sun, the S-U-N, is a person. Because Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2 tells us that Jesus Christ is the sun, the capital S-U-N, of righteousness. And when he arises, he's bringing healing in his wings. That sun is a person, and it's the person of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul, when he was on the road to Damascus, or Saul before his conversion in Acts chapter 26, the Bible says that he saw a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun. And that person was Jesus Christ. And man, John is, is looking to this voice and who he sees is Christ. And what he sees is something that is shining in all of his strength and in all of his glory. And listen, none of us, when we get out of here, it's middle of the day, none of us are going to walk outside and look straight up at the sun and say, wow, this is fantastic. Burn your eyes out of your head. I mean, you're an idiot if you do that. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's just dumb. You just don't do that. And as powerful and as strong as that is, and how you can't even stand to bear that. Can you imagine what John is seeing? Christ in all of his glory as a sun that shines in his strength and, and what it signifies is Christ's glory. And we're going to wind it down right here, but listen, we're not done yet. You've got a back page to those notes. Everybody's like, oh, man, I thought we were out of here, man. I timed this thing just right, man. I got, I got just enough time to give it to you. Okay, listen. We spent a lot of time describing what John saw. And we spent a lot of time chasing the Bible to understand that what John saw and who John saw was Christ glorified. Okay? All of that gets us to this point. And it's this point right here, point number five. John's reaction to the revelation. Because listen, when John saw Christ as he is, well, there's only one reaction to that. Look at verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. And I'm telling you, that's a powerful statement for someone who knew Christ personally that walked with him for three and a half years, that saw him, that loved him, that prayed with him, that ate with him, that fellowshiped with him, that followed him to the cross and saw him crucified, 
saw him resurrected, saw him for 40 days after the resurrection, saw him ascend to heaven in a cloud. When I saw him in his glory, I fell at his feet as dead. Because that's the only reaction there is. You see, you see John, didn't have to, John didn't have to imagine what that day would be like. He didn't have to imagine what his eyes would see, and I'm mocking a Christian song right now, when Jesus' face was before me. He didn't have to wonder what his heart would feel if he danced for Jesus or in awe of him be still. He didn't wonder if he should stand in his presence or to his knees should he fall. He didn't sing hallelujah. The truth is he didn't need to speak at all. He didn't even need to imagine because his face hit the dirt as a dead man. You see, how you see Christ determines how you react to Christ. That's why some people have not yet received the gospel and continue to reject it. Because they still see a dead man hanging on a cross. And that's true for a time. But that day's past. Some people don't get right with God, they don't receive salvation, or they don't get serious about their walk with God because all they see is a baby in a manger. And man, it's just a baby. That doesn't really have an effect on me, other than it's kind of cute. Some people see Christ during his earthly ministry, and again, full of compassion, God becoming man and and showing mercy and grace to us and, and healing us and ministering to us and teaching us his word and maybe teaching moral principles. But listen... That was true for a time and for a season. But when we see him as he is, what demands a reaction? It demands a reaction. John hit the ground as a dead man. And if you're going to see Christ the way the Bible portrays Christ, well, the right reaction for you and I is also to die. In other words... When you see Christ as he is, you'll see you as you really are. When you see him in, your, in his glory and in his power and his justice and his judgment and the power of his word and the presence of his word, it will leave you with only one response. Romans chapter 6 verse 11 says this, reckon, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, the reason that we struggle with sin so much, even as Christians, is because we don't see Christ the way he is. The way we reckon ourselves dead to sin, even after we become a believer in Christ, is we keep a clear view of who Jesus really is. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 31, he says, I die daily. That's not talking about physical death. What it means is Paul got up every morning And he put into memory who Christ is. And because of who Christ is and his glory and his power and his justice and his judgment, Paul said, listen, there's nothing left of me that can stand in the presence of that. That's the right reaction. That's the right reaction to a glorified Christ. And then then number six, let's get the reassurance that John got. John's reassurance 
from the Revelation, verse 17. The Bible says, he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, what's the next two words? Fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm he that liveth and was dead. Behold, I'm alive forevermore. I'm in and have the keys of death and hell. Two things I want to mention real quick here. Number one, John's reaction was a reaction of fear. And it was a right reaction. You say, well, I don't, I don't really know if he feared Christ because John's saved, man. John's an apostle. John's a Christian. Well, if he wasn't fearing, why did the Lord have to tell him, fear not? <laughs> John, John was in the very presence of a glorified Christ. He's as good as a dead man. And the truth is, you and I were to have a healthy fear of the Lord because it will drive us to a point of surrender before Almighty God. The second thing that we need to be reminded is that John got reassurance from the Lord. Number one, Christ touched him, put his right hand upon him. And all of his glory, and all of his power, and all of his magnificence, and justice, and judgment, he didn't just shout, fear not. <laughs> he put his hand on him. And again, that's grace, man. That's mercy. He touches John. He, he, he doesn't just speak to John, but he personally connects with John. And then he tells him, John, you don't have to fear. You don't have to fear. And then the revelation continues. Listen, I don't, you can close your Bibles. I don't know where you're at this morning. But here's my goal this morning. My goal is to introduce you to the glorified Christ. The goal is that we see Jesus... Not the way history shows us, not the way secular artists show us, not the way that we're comfortable with in our mind, but that we see Christ as he is. And if the, if the Bible's true, and it is, that's who he is. And if the Bible's true, and it is, that's who we worship, that's who we surrender to, that's who we serve, that's who we submit to, that's who we'll give an account to, the person of Jesus Christ. So let's have the right perspective. If you're here today and you don't know Christ to save you, listen, let me encourage you, respond to the gospel. Ask the Lord to save you from your sin. If you are saved today, let me encourage you, view your sin through the eyes of Christ that sees it already and because of who he is confess it and forsake it and humble yourself at his feet